Good evening, and welcome to Profiles. I'm Will Murphy. Usually on this program, we feature one or perhaps two guests in the radio studio talking arts, politics, or current events. In this episode, we feature a number of voices, some of them recorded almost 40 years ago, as we take a look at the history of Bloomington's RCA Thompson plant. RCA opened the factory in 1940, gradually transferring its radio production capacity from Camden, New Jersey. Almost 60 years later, after several changes in plant ownership, the last color television rolled off the Bloomington assembly line on April 1, 1998. When the plant shut down, 1,200 Thompson workers lost their jobs in Bloomington, along with another 400 in Indianapolis. Thompson had moved its production operations to Mexico. On tonight's Profiles, WFIU producer Josh Brewer talks with labor scholar Jefferson Cowie about the economic factors that governed the Bloomington factory's fate. And we hear from RCA workers, recorded at IU in the 1970s and 1990s, speaking about how the plant and the closure affected their lives. See your authorized RCA Victor dealer tomorrow. This is for the Oral History Research Project. In the late 1970s, researchers at Indiana University conducted a project on the economic history of Indiana. One researcher, named Mary Stevens, interviewed women who had worked at the RCA manufacturing plant in Bloomington. Okay, it's February 3rd, 1979. I'm in the home of Elizabeth Sheldon, a worker from RCA. From the day hiring began at the Bloomington plant in the late 1930s through the 1950s, RCA almost exclusively hired young, working-class women to work in their plants. Elizabeth Sheldon was one of those women. And when um, did you start working for RCA? Uh, it was September the 22nd. 1949. When was that? Was that right out of high school? Yes, on. And what did you start out there as? How, what did they hire you for? Assembly line worker. I crimped and soldered small parts in the radio. The RCA plant on Bloomington's south side grew to be one of the largest RCA factories in the world, a symbol of prosperity both in Monroe County and throughout Indiana. Yet, by the late 1970s, only 30 years after the plant opened, they began to move much of production to Mexico. Again, here's RCA worker Elizabeth Sheldon in 1979. I was in plant one. They um, started closing down the television lines, one by one, gradually. Is this when it moved to Mexico? Yes. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Ever since they moved to Mexico, it's gradually reducing the production of color television. And actually, other than the new automation in Plant 3, all the Bloomington plant does now is assemble different parts of a television set into the cabinet. They don't actually build the mm -hmm. chassis and the, of the color television set anymore. Mm -hmm. Stories like these are common throughout the Midwest. Small towns and big cities alike have been forever changed by the arrival and departure of mass industrial manufacturing. Big factories came in the 1950s, and there were jobs, lots of jobs. 
But by the early 1970s, many had downsized. People often say they moved jobs to Mexico. Though this is broadly true, the story is not so simple. Author Jeff Cowie is a professor of labor history at Cornell University. His book, Capital Moves, RCA's 70-Year Quest for Cheap Labor, published in 2001, presents RCA as a case study in the balance between labor and profit. Cowie says the remarkable success of the RCA plant in southern Indiana was just one stop on the company's move from Camden, New Jersey, to Bloomington, to Memphis, Tennessee, and eventually to Juarez, Mexico. In discussing his research, Cowie explained what drew him to study RCA. I decided that I wanted to compare the old sort of dying regime of industrial relations in the United States, which was sort of high-wage, male, industrial, lunch bucket, liberal kind of thing that we had seen from the 40s to the 70s, with what was emerging on the periphery in Mexico, and which was mostly teenage girls working in these large factories. So uh, RCA became my, my case study. I was going to do a comparison of Bloomington and Ciudad Juarez, where, which was where RCA opened up its first uh, maquiladora or you know offshore Mexican border plant. And I, the irony of my research, I think, is that while I expected it to be very different from what was going on in Mexico, I found it to be a very similar story. And part of what I had hoped to illuminate politically – in that study was to sort of think, oh, well, maybe people can recognize each other. These different, maybe the African-American workers in Memphis and the, and the you know, mostly white people here in, in Bloomington that were at the plant and, and the, the Southern Eastern Europe, Europeans in Camden, New Jersey, and then the Mexicans in Juarez could all sort of, oh, we're all having a similar experience here and could maybe begin to think about how those experiences might might connect between communities and between states and between nations. Cowie says Bloomington's RCA factory was a kind of manufacturing the Midwest had never seen before. It was electrical, and it was radio, new technologies that promised a different world. RCA is a fascinating corporation. It was the center of technological development in the early 20th century, uh, in the 1920s. It was it was a little bit like Apple or something is today, except it was a conglomerate created to build radios, to make recordings, to broadcast radio. Uh, NBC started with RCA. So it was, it was an enormous technological media empire. I'm just looking at their manufacturing, though. And it began in the 1920s in Camden, New Jersey. Enormous, beautiful factory there that took over the RC, the uh, Victor talking machine uh, manufacturing facility, which I'm sure everybody knows, the nipper dog looking at the gramophone with his head tilted because he recognizes his master's voice, which became RCA's label over time. So in Camden, people may know that the 1930s was the biggest and most successful working class upheaval in the United States. Under the New Deal, Industrial workers entered into went, went from almost no representation to thirty five percent union density, strong bargaining power, enormous redistributive power uh, in terms of economic wages and working conditions and benefits. And so, as soon as this happened in the nineteen thirties, 
to RCA, which is this very epic struggle to organize the Camden works there. They switched all of a sudden in 1938 to fighting the union to saying, oh, okay, great. It's a new day. We're going to recognize the union. The auto war, the auto plants are recognizing their unions, the electrical, the glass, the steel, and mostly women, um, but not solely. And it was organized by the United Electrical Workers, which was a very radical union at the time. And so the RCA took a two-pronged attack. On the one hand, they recognized the union said, this is great, okay, we have a new day of modern industrial relations and we're going to take care of our workers. And then at the same time, they began to slip production out the back door. And they slipped it out the back door, basically a rural place that had a lot of unemployment, a lot of farm girls looking for work during the Depression, uh, with very little industrial traditions, and that place was known as Bloomington, Indiana. The formula that they sought by coming to Bloomington looks a lot like what they would eventually do when they came, went to Mexico in the 1960s and 1970s. RCA opened production in Bloomington in 1940. Eva Steinhagen was a former RCA employee. She was also interviewed in 1979. She explained her understanding of the factory's move to Bloomington from Camden, New Jersey. I would say they came to Bloomington. One, one reason is that I imagine they got a real good buy on that factory there. It sat there empty for years. And there was a good job market here, most all of them uh, are people that's more or less the same. I mean, they're, they're, not, uh, they're farther removed from uh, the language barriers and stuff that they had over in the East and, and a lot of the labor problems that they had over there. Of course, I don't really know. In 1940, they were, labor problems wasn't too, wasn't too prevalent then because there wasn't that many people had jobs. Mm-hmm. One of Jeff Cowie's key research questions was, why did RCA choose Bloomington, Indiana, of all places? They sent out these teams of researchers to go drive around the country looking for good sites. And when they went looking for these sites, they looked for a very specific package. One, they, like, they tended to like college towns or something with a little sophistication for the, for the management. You know, having IU here helped. And, and being able to draw on them for, for technical expertise and, and hiring managerial executives and things. But for the workers, they tended to look for areas that included high unemployment. And here you had uh, a lot of changes in agriculture were going on here. The Depression was, was still on. This was a, a place that had a, a great pool of underemployed people. They looked for a place with very limited industrial traditions. So they didn't want they you know they weren't work, moving to Chicago. Uh, they're not moving to Akron. They're not moving to Flint, Michigan. They specifically don't want places that have labor because they don't want a union. Or if they do, they want to be able to control it a little bit. And then they also went into those areas and specifically sought teenage women or teenage girls to work for them. So it wasn't really the unemployed farmer that they wanted here in Monroe County. Actually, it was a five-county area they drew from. They wanted the unemployed farmer's daughter <laughs> to come work for them. Just unskilled, raw labor. Because, you know, it wasn't – it was hard work, but it wasn't highly skilled work. These were basically solder lines where they would just solder together radios. When RCA began hiring its first Bloomington employees, most working women in the area – worked clerical or domestic jobs. In 1940, when RCA moved to Bloomington, Mary Frances Roll was in charge of the company's personnel department. 
she managed the hiring and recruiting of this new female workforce for RCA. She spoke with an interviewer in 1990 about Bloomington's job market before RCA. Just a warning, the quality of this recording is poor and at times may be hard to understand. Up until then, there was nothing for women. Uh, 90% of all working women worked as domestics. Uh, Then maybe 10% of them were sales clerks or uh, clerical. And then your professional people broke down to nurses and school teachers. So uh, that is probably the big reason, or one of the reasons, that RCA came to town. There were several other factors. But uh, uh, as far as having industries, per se, that would hire women, you just, they just weren't here. RCA sought out young women workers in many ways, including newspaper advertisements and in-person recruiting of high school graduates. One of these teenage girls was Elizabeth Sheldon, Sheldon told an interviewer in 1979 how she was recruited to RCA. Tell about uh, how you actually went down to RCA. Oh. To, uh, what was going on then? You were just out of high school, right? Yeah, I was out high I graduated in 49. I received a little card in the mail from RCA and said, uh, come down and uh, we'll uh, interview for a good job. And, good pay and light assembly, so I went there. <laughs> At first, when RCA started, they did not hire married women. They only hired single girls. And, uh, uh, of course, that didn't work because the single girls would get married and not tell. <laughs> and so then they gave up that idea. I suppose it was uh, RCA's thought that uh, Single girls would uh, be less likely to be absent due to children, illness, and things like that. But that situation didn't last very long at all. And uh, uh, the main reason is uh, because of the crimping and soldering is more suitable for a woman's hands than it is a man's. Because uh, usually you have to reach into very small places. And actually, a man's hands just isn't suitable for most men's hands. Again, here's longtime manager of RCA personnel, Mary Frances Roll. When, when we came to town, and in our hiring, we had a very specific program. So our first obligation was to the local area. Our hiring restrictions were very strict. We wouldn't get away with it today. We hired only women between the ages of 18 and 25, high school graduates, single. So I guess they were glad to have a different job. Oh, yeah, we were the highest paid uh, industry, of course. We paid tremendous salary. Do you remember what it was? Yes, 13 and a half cents an hour. <laughs> the boys, uh, they made 15 and a half cents an hour. Always paid the boys more than the women. And women were primarily the assemblers. Uh, they did the assembly. You see, our first product was a small nipper radio, mm-hmm. a little table model radio. And uh, it was all uh, on a conveyor belt. And uh, they felt that women's hands were much more dexterous and they were much more suited to a repetitive type job that could get boring and so on. 
even later, in the 1950s, female workers outnumbered men at RCA 5 to 1. Jeff Cowie explains that these hiring restrictions were all part of RCA's formula to ensure cheap, compliant workers. Well, the official story for why they choose women is that they have more nimble fingers than men. And you'll read this over and over and over. And, of course, it's not true. If, if that were true, then, you know, brain surgeons and concert violinists would all be women. It has to do with being able to maintain as docile a workforce using gender ideologies for as long as possible. And that, that if you can sort of recreate the sense of patriarchy within the factory that is within the home, then you can maintain high production and low costs and they'll listen to the boss. RCA did bring good, relatively high-paying jobs for young women. And Cowie says this came at a critical time in American history. The funny thing about the timing on this is that they opened this right in time for the defense boom because of World War II. I don't think they opened it for the defense boom, but they did. So a lot of women during World War II, of course, this is the era of Rosie the Riveter, who will, you know, the woman who goes to work to build the defense goods um, for the boys overseas. And there, w- there was an element of that for sure. And both Camden and Bloomington at first were at full production. Again, here's RCA worker Eva Steinhagen speaking about RCA during wartime. I had a brother in service. In fact, he was in Pearl Harbor. And uh, everybody was very interested in, in doing their job and was very, very patriotic people. Just about everybody there had somebody. They, we even had a picture board where we brought their pictures in and, and put them up over on the wall. And we had a lot of them while we were there that they came and got them and took them out where mm-hmm. their sons or family had been killed. And everybody was very, was very interested in doing the right thing. You had a feeling of responsibility, and uh, many times they'd come along and say, we want you to work till 9 o'clock tonight. And I had worked when I didn't even have any way home. I went to the bus station and stood out in the cold to catch a bus home because I didn't have a car. I couldn't mm-hmm. afford one. Mm-hmm. And if they said you come in and work on Saturday, you get you got pressure there if you refused. and Well, you could refuse, but, I mean, they tried to tell you, you know, the importance of it. And I'd, I worked a lot of overtime during that period of time. I felt obligated to work this overtime. If uh, there was men fighting and dying, I felt like at least I, if I could put in the overtime. Of course, I had two small children, but I had my mother to take care of them, and she took good care of them. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on Profiles, stories about Indiana history. When we come back, we'll continue our program on Bloomington's RCA manufacturing plant.
Today, we're listening to oral interviews with women who worked the line at RCA's radio and television manufacturing plant in Bloomington, Indiana, with commentary by Professor Jeff Cowie of Cornell University, who published a detailed study of RCA titled Capital Moves, RCA's 70-Year Quest for Cheap Labor. In 1940, RCA moved its radio manufacturing operations from Camden, New Jersey to Bloomington, Indiana. The plant started by producing consumer radios, mostly hiring young women to work the soldering and production lines. Unlike the major manufacturing centers on the East Coast, at the time, labor unions in southern Indiana did not have much power due to, among other things, a different work culture born in farming traditions. Again, Jeff Cowie explains. Um, there were some very limited uh, labor relations history here. Uh, the stone cutting industry uh, had some experience with them, coal mining for the south and down into Kentucky. Shower Brother, Showers Brothers, which was the big furniture factory, was was never organized. Um, so it was fairly, it was very spotty. And when they did finally get a union, they got a different union than the one in Camden, which for RCA was a major coup. They did not want these guys in the same bargaining system. It was called pattern bargaining between different uh, sites and firms uh, because now they could play whipsaw, what's called whipsawing, playing one off the other, uh, classic kind of um, divide and conquer kind of kind of uh, problem because – this is a very labor-intensive industry at that time before it was highly automated. It's much less labor-intensive now. But at the time, it was you needed a lot of bodies just to do these minute operations. And so labor cost was a very important part of consumer electronics um, or consumer electric appliances, as they were called then. So in Camden, now they've got a union and they've got to negotiate and all that. But now out here, they have a brand-new fresh workforce that uh, has none of that. They can sort of turn back the clock a little bit on the labor force they're getting. And there's one specific group of people that Mary Frances Roll, the woman who did the hiring for RCA, did not ever hire. And that was anybody who came from a coal mining family because Mm -hmm. coal miners are militant unionists. The workers at RCA did ultimately join a union, they joined the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or the IBEW. This was a different union from the one in Camden, New Jersey. The workers in New Jersey were part of the more radical United Electrical Workers, or UE. Again, here's Jeff Cowie. Yeah, the UE is actually, was actually led by communists. And uh, largely because of that, they actually did a really great job of being inclusive of women and African Americans and equal pay for equal work, and they were really on the kind of the cutting edge of that. They had nutty relationships with their foreign policy issues because they were kind of locked into this whole Soviet business. But actually, on on the bread and butter issues and in being inclusive, they were ex- they were an excellent union, and they still are. So they came out here. Um, they were part of what was called the CIO, which is the federation at the time of all the big industrial unions of the 1930s. Congress of Industrial Organizations included the auto workers and the steel workers and all that. Kind of, and they were part of that. And so the CIO sends the organizers out here, and they got a nasty reception. The uh, Midwestern uh, sort of rural sensibility didn't truck all that well with these sort of fast-talking uh, 
communist infiltrated groups, uh, they beat the hell out of them, to be honest. They beat them up. Um, so, so, so they ended up with, with what, what is a, a more conservative union, the IBEW, which actually came out of the building trades. Their electrical was wiring houses and wiring buildings. So they're not really an industrial union originally. And at the time, they very, very reluctantly embraced industrial unions. Now, why? What's the problem? Well, the old craft unions, like the IBEW, they're wiring the buildings and things like that. They see themselves as people of skill, often people um, a little bit better than this riffraff, unskilled uh, industrial workers, many of whom were immigrants. So they didn't really want to be involved with them. And eventually the IBEW came around in the 40s and began to say, okay, we actually do need to organize industry. But it was always kind of reluctant. Unlike the union in Camden, the union in Bloomington had more modest demands. Yet even those demands challenged management's bottom line. It was a pretty tepid operation. It was, a, it was pretty homegrown. They weren't getting a lot of advice from the uh, international office. But, they, you know, they had voice. They had voice on the job, and they would enter into collective bargaining agreements. These were not big demand kinds of things. They were they they did their function, but they did slowly over time drive up labor costs, and as darn well they should. You know, in the early 1950s, they were probably only making a premium over minimum wage of probably 10 to 20 percent as an entry level worker. But having voice on the job, having contracts, having uh, the predictability of that, the security of that, it's very, it's very important. And then the more they grew, both the plant, the workforce, and the union, they began to sort of assert a little bit more power. And then in the 1960s, as production was really at its height and the workers had really grown much more accustomed to having industry, you saw a whole series of strikes in the 1960s here in Bloomington. They were mostly about, well, you could divide them between pressures on the shop floor and wages. Those would be the two main things. We tend to think of strikes often as workers want more wages, want more, more, more. Not that that's not true, but often what drives these things are actually we don't like the way management's treating us. We don't like the way production is organized. We don't like the pace of the line. We don't, you know, they're actually questions about the organization of work, and the pressures on the shop floor. And that's really where unions play a really important role, is you can, you can bargain over that stuff. So they began to do that in, in, in the 60s, and then the pattern began to repeat itself. Elizabeth Sheldon worked at RCA during many of these union strikes. Sheldon spoke to an interviewer in 1979. Before the plant closed, she had this to say about the weakening unions over the years. What do you think about the uh, union at RCA, and, and has it ever helped or, or fought for the workers or made a lot of changes or well, has it done much good? Well, in some cases it has, in some cases it's it's more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> what is it? That, what is the union at RCA? Is it the electrical workers? or It's IBEW. Mm -hmm. Do you remember any strikes since yes, you've been there? Yes, uh, there was... Uh, one uh, legal strike, it lasted, oh, maybe a week. When was this? Oh, my, 20 years ago at least. What were they striking for? What wages. Wages. Higher wages? Mm -hmm. Did they get it? Was it a successful mm -hmm. strike? Or well, was it yes. violent? 
No, no, they just, uh, they just picketed and, uh, and, uh, negotiated and, uh, in about a week they settled. Were they happy? Did they get mm -hmm. what they wanted then? Well, I think mostly, mostly what they wanted. Has that been the only one? Oh, there have been a few Wildcat strikes, uh, uh, but, um, I remember one, it was about ten years ago. I went to work one morning and there's some... Some men were outside telling us not to go in and everything, you know, but uh, it wasn't a legal strike, so I went in anyway. They let you cross? Mm-hmm. And now you feel that uh, there isn't much leverage to have any strikes or, or even ask for no, anything? No, we have no position at all right now because mm -hmm. uh, uh, we're lucky to have a job, I tell you. <laughs> is, that, is that what the administrators tell you? Is that No, it's true. I can see it every day. Uh, with the, if you go through plant three, you can see the machinery doing the work, <laughs> and uh, they just don't need the people. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on Profiles, we're listening to stories about Indiana history. When we come back, we'll hear about Bloomington's RCA plant and its eventual move to Juarez, Mexico. In Depression-era Bloomington, RCA found high unemployment and poverty in thus a docile workforce without a history of unionization. But as rural farmers moved into urban industrial labor, awareness of collective bargaining grew. Slowly, this drove up labor costs, and RCA's management again looked elsewhere to find cheaper labor. The plant grew quickly as the United States entered World War II and RCA began producing products for the U.S. military. By the end of the war, Bloomington's RCA plant had grown, and the company began to take notice. Professor Jeff Cowie explains. As soon as the war ended, Bloomington began to grow. And the more Bloomington grew, the more and the more the more skilled jobs began to move in, then they began to hire more men. Well, they went from... Uh, just sort of soldering parts together and chassis, what were called chassis of radios, that would eventually be finally assembled elsewhere in Camden, to actually building the entire radio product. And then television in the 50s was introduced, and that was very exciting. Uh, this is a new innovative product that everybody wanted to get in on. And, and it was sort of glamorous, you know, even though it was not the best work in the world, but you were involved in a very exciting product. RCA worker Elizabeth Sheldon remembered the initial switch from radio to television production. 
Well, let's see, I think it was about three years I was on the radio and uh, and they started uh, experimenting with the television. There was um, about a group of ten women and one foreman that were selected. They um, went to a place in the plant all by themselves and uh, they uh, each person built the entire television set from the beginning to the end. One person, one set, and uh, the foreman read uh, read the instructions from the process sheet over a microphone and loudspeaker set, you know. And uh, uh, we would listen to what she said, and then we would uh, look at our uh, charts that we had, some charts to look at, and then we would placed apart in the television set until we completed uh, one entire television set, which took about three to four days for one set. <laughs> we did that about, oh, maybe six months. Then they uh, broke the, the process down into smaller operations, and uh, I think uh, when they finally put the television on the production line, it, it uh, there was over, oh, maybe a hundred, it took about a hundred people to finish one set. By the 1950s, Bloomington's RCA television production grew and became RCA's largest television manufacturing plant. The RCA complex on the south side of Bloomington was huge. Three gigantic buildings for production lines, plus administrative offices and a warehouse for shipping and receiving. Production never stopped. Former RCA employee Eva Steinhagen describes the peak of production. When they, when they was at one time there, they was running a force of close to 8,000 people in RCA. They had a night shift and day shift going in both plants, and then some people in plant three there at one time. Jeff Cowie explains the growth attracted attention. Yeah, and then Bloomington hits full production in the late 50s and into the 60s. And, and it's an enormous, enormous enterprise by then. It's gone from kind of this little peripheral place in the RCA empire to the center. And, uh, but Bloomington becomes the center. And, and eventually they even move their, their corporate headquarters to Indianapolis and Carmel. And so, so really the periphery becomes the new center. By the late 1960s, RCA had found the cheap labor it was looking for. It began to move its capital south. Again, here's Professor Jeff Cowie. Well, in, internally in, here in Bloomington, it, was, it was, um, began very slowly, a very slow from, a decrease from the height of production and until you, know, you were down to a few thousand workers in the 80s and 90s and then before it, it completely shut down. But what RCA did before all of that was begin to experiment, well, where are we going to go next? And they began, that's when they first looked to Memphis, Tennessee, which, of course, is in the south with its own peculiar sense of labor relations, and then finally in, in, in Mexico. And then once those were growing, that's when you began to really feel the impact here in, uh, in Bloomington. Well, the interesting thing about the Memphis case, which only lasted four years, it was a complete failure on every every front. Um, was they actually decided this was this was the height of industrial 
power for unions in America in the 1960s. And they decided, you know what, we're, we're actually just probably going to have a union here. Again, they made sure it wasn't the same union they had in, in Bloomington. Four years later, the whole thing's just a complete disaster. They, they've lost $20 million. Uh, race relations are a problem. Martin Luther King is assassinated in 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so African Americans are are, are are more aggressive. They have strikes. They treat the workers like crap. That was just a bad scene. And so what they did do is create the beginnings of the global corporation, in a way, by beginning to explore in Mexico. Mexico had been experimenting with having large corporations come across the border just in this 12-mile strip along the border that they declared a kind of free trade zone where American firms could come and use the labor there and just ship the stuff, the manufactured goods back across the border without facing any tariffs. Well, uh, RCA was at the at the forefront of that. And in 1968, they opened their first factory in um, Juarez. And they were the first maquiladora, one of the first maquiladoras. Much as RCA moved from Camden, New Jersey to Bloomington, Indiana, the company slowly started to move jobs to Mexico. Little by little, the workers in Bloomington started to notice. When do you think they started to feel that crunch from the... Oh, Japanese? it's been several years ago. Yeah. It's, it, it wasn't something that happened overnight. Mm-hmm. In fact, they, they had been, I'm sure, of course, we didn't hear all that much about it, but I'm sure they started looking to this several years ago. See, there's, there's not a, a chassis built on American soil now. I don't think it... Uh, they, for a long time, they even built their own tuners, and they finally even took them overseas. They took them to Taiwan. The tuners are uh-huh. in Taiwan? Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, so this had happened while you were still there? Oh, right? yeah, it, so all some happened. Of it, it all happened while I was still there. Mm-hmm. We had one Bloomington-built chassis line left when I retired from there, and it... it Terminated on the on July of the year that I that I uh, retired. That mm-hmm. was the last of the last Bloomington Bill chess. And have they laid people off at those times? Yes. Is that the result? Yeah. Again, here's Professor Jeff Cowie. Early on, almost everybody I interviewed could remember when the first time they saw product come into the factory labeled from Mexico, and there were. You know, you have to remember what was Mexico in the seventies, right? It was, you know, a place maybe to go on vacation or where Pancho Villa was from, or you know, whatever. Uh, nobody thought about it as a manufacturing center, and there was always this sort of a slightly racial assumption that, well, they can't do what we do, right? There's no way. Well, you know, if you give people the technology and the investments and the training, yeah, I'm sorry, they can, they can do it. And they and they certainly did, and so the same mechanism that happened between Camden and Bloomington began to have happen between Bloomington and Juarez. First, the parts started coming; the Mexican parts started coming in, and the chassis started coming in. For, and then Bloomington became just a final assembly plant, and then eventually, even the final assembly went to Mexico. So it was the same sort of seesaw between the cities, where one's growing and the other's decreasing. It's not like we shut it here, we open it there. That's what they actually tried in Memphis. They just tried to open to full production, and it failed. 
it's more a gradual decrease in one place and an increase in another. Hmm. RCA line workers were well aware of the changes afoot and felt that the industry was leaving. Here is former line worker Elizabeth Sheldon speaking in 1979. Well, the tubes tubes were shipped in from uh, another RCA plant. Mm-hmm. I think it was Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. But the, originally, you started with an empty metal base, and you the entire set from the base until the cabinet was made at uh, RCA Bloomington. The entire set, 90%, was made at RCA. And now we have parts of the uh, assembling process done in uh, in that plant in Mexico. Yes, the the main uh, the main chassis is now shipped from Mexico. You know, when did you actually? Well, stop in, in a small way, they started the the move ten to twelve years ago. Oh, uh-huh. It all happened gradually over a 10-12 year period mm-hmm. and uh, now uh, they're switching again to the automation and what that will bring I don't know you'll have to wait and see <laughs> come back next year maybe. <laughs> in the mid-1980s RCA sold their legendary Bloomington plant to General Electric which then sold it to French company Thompson Jeff Cowie titled his book Capital Moves he argues that the title suggests that when industries like RCA leave, more is lost than jobs. Yeah, and but, but what I also say in the title is Capital Moves. That's the title, main title of the book. And what I mean by that is not just that capital relocates, but it also moves a whole series of social relations in, in these communities. And a, a place with no union traditions becomes a union town. A place of unemployment becomes a place of high employment. I mean, here... It, if you were in Bloomington and you were a high school graduate in 1969, you could have got a job anywhere. They, you just go knocking in Westinghouse, General Electric, whatever it was, you'd get a job. Um, yeah, it was really high employment. It was, you know, it was a great time, and that gave you that gave you a sense of power on the job. It's the opposite of that feeling of the factory losing. They they need you, and being needed gives you a certain sense of ability to bargain individually or collectively. Cowie found that the more a community depended on one industry for its economy and social foundation, the harder it was when the capital moved. I think the communities that have the most diverse economic bases tend to make the transition more effectively. Uh, But if you're in Detroit and it was all automobiles all the time and you lose automobiles, there's nothing left. You see people leaving, families breaking up. You know, people have to go to different places. And different cities have responded. Camden never came back. It's still on the list of the 10 worst cities in America. Bloomington's doing okay. Um, Memphis, mixed bag. Uh, uh, You know, Federal Express went there. um, And they, uh, but largely because they're a non-union shipping company. And it's a non-union site, so they thought they would they could do that. Um, and you know, I think the whole border zone, for instance, along you know all those uh, from Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez and all these other manufacturing cities along in Mexico along the Mexican border, when they they have the advantage of geographic proximity to the United States, but in the long run, 
unless those economies diversify, I think they may be vulnerable too. In 1998, Thompson moved the plant's remaining 1,500 jobs to Mexico, leaving Bloomington and four empty buildings spanning 2 million square feet. Job loss is one of the most painful things I think most people will ever go through. And the sense of disempowerment when things are just being drawn away from you, when opportunity is physically leaving, is very difficult. And the sense of failure, the sense of, as an individual, failed yourself, failed your family, not able to provide, you've been doing this for 10 or 20 years, what else are you going to do now? Those senses are just awful. And, you know, we know we can correlate plant closings and deindustrialization with all sorts of negative outcomes, suicide rates, alcoholism rates, domestic violence, um, a host of, of negative, negative outcomes. So it's a very difficult transition. And without other opportunities, it can be disastrous. Bloomington's been somewhat fortunate that you have, there's both healthcare and, but especially IU, has grown immensely and soaked up some of that uh, labor. But imagine if that weren't weren't there. There are other communities like Bloomington that don't have a major university, who lost their factory. So it can be one of the most devastating and traumatic experiences a working person can go through. Mary Frances Roll worked at RCA for nearly 50 years. Again, here's a recording of her speaking to an IU researcher in 1990, just eight years before the factory closed its doors. I will say one thing that uh, RCA did from word one was instill pride. We talked pride, we preached pride. Pride starting with the individual himself and how he appeared, how he looked. Pride in their workmanship, pride in their plant. We had a new plant. And everything was new, a new world, a new era. And I can truly say that uh, we had an RCA family. So I, I saw the plant go from uh, 13 people that started to 8,000. What is it now? Do you have any idea? Practically nothing. About 1,800, probably. Um, maybe, I don't know. I don't even like to talk about it. When RCA sold, my heart went with it. It's kind of like burying your mother all over again. The empty structures on the RCA land were raised by the city of Bloomington, leaving a vast, empty lot. About half the site sits undeveloped.
Linda Williamson is now the Director of Economic and Sustainable Development for the City of Bloomington. In 1998, when the RCA Thompson plant shut down, she was the president and CEO of the Bloomington Economic Development Corporation. Well, I remember vividly the morning of, uh, in February 1997, when we got the call. The Thompson plant would be shutting down, and more than 1,500 jobs would be lost. And immediately thereafter, that afternoon, Mayor Fernandez, Mayor John Fernandez at the time, called a meeting of some directors of not-for-profits, the United Way, the Bloomington Economic Development Corporation, and others to come and begin to think about immediately how were we going to assist the workers at the plant. And that was the first priority, even before we started thinking about what we're going to have to do in order to revitalize a 200-acre site that at the time had 2 million square feet of what was to soon be vacant property on it. For Williamson, it wasn't just a matter of business. Well, absolutely. I can talk about RCA from a personal level. My mother worked there uh, when I was growing up and was a line worker. Uh, Many in my family and many, many of my friends' families. Williamson says once the plant shut down, local agencies began organizing training opportunities for those affected and mobilizing social services. She says the silver lining around the dark cloud of the Thompson shutdown was the establishment and expansion of training and education opportunities. The closing of Thompson really helped our community understand the opportunity that we had as as a greater group to assist workers who were losing their jobs to really embrace employees and help them identify what's next. And the coming together of services around the, what at the time of closing was almost 1,200 people losing their jobs, was pretty phenomenal. Our local workforce development center, now called Work One. Uh, was very much involved in that. Not only did they provide the traditional things like unemployment, helping get people signed up, but they really engaged in helping people identify what they wanted to do next, what they might have dreamed about but never did because they thought they were going to work at RCA forever. So the ability of various groups in the community coming together to identify resources was so important, and that was really the first time that I recall really working to help those that wanted to go to school be able to do so. Now, Williamson says, the model for recruitment isn't what it was in the 1940s when RCA was looking for untrained labor. She says an educated workforce is the cornerstone of Bloomington's approach to economic development now. Employers that would look here are looking here because of the educated workforce. And that's what's changed over time. It's not just looking for people to hire, but looking for people with skills, people with an education, people with an ability to keep on learning forever uh, for the rest of their lives. At the time of my interview with Williamson, it was 18 years, almost to the day, since RCA Thompson employees walked out for the final shift. Someone driving through the intersection of Rogers and Patterson on Bloomington's south side past the big Cook Pharmaca plant that Williamson says employs some 600 people, one might forget that there was ever a 200-acre RCA campus there once upon a time. 
and while there may be no visual reminder of the history beyond the RCA Park on South Rogers, Williamson says there's value in taking a moment to remember. Which I always like to have these conversations about something that happened 20 or 30 years, because it does take that long to assess how did we do with that? How did folks do with that? Um, you can't do that the year after or two years after. It takes a while. Building streets and, and businesses takes a long time. And so I think it helps with everyone's perspective about um, what it takes to build community um, is to take these opportunities to kind of look back. That was Linda Williamson, the Director of Economic and Sustainable Development for the City of Bloomington. This program has been made possible through a matching grant from Indiana Humanities in cooperation with the National Endowment for the Humanities. Particular thanks go to Barbara Truesdell and the Indiana University Center for Documentary Research and Practice, which provided the recordings of the RCA workers. For Profiles, I'm Will Murphy. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer, the studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Research and writing assistance by Shane Lauder. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.